All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. I'm not sure which number edition this is of Conversations with Dr. Tom Cowan and Friends. Um, but I can tell you, I, I think this is <clears throat> probably the most exciting perspective interview that I've done because I have an amazing guest. Her name is Catherine Austin Fitz. And uh, Catherine, you, you may not have seen my other interviews, but I, usually people say, you know, this guy, he went to MIT and he's a medical doctor and you were, I uh, think, assistant secretary of housing and urban development and all that. But I, I tend to not remember those things very well. So <laughs> I, I like to say how I heard about you or how I met you and, and sort of what I'm interested in, in how I got interested in what you're doing rather than a whole sort of biography because I'll probably get that wrong. And then I always say, if you hear anything that you didn't think I got right or disagree with, I would love it if you correct me because okay. I'm doing my own riff. So, so we're basically talking today about the, mostly I would say the economic ramifications of where we are now or how we got here economically. Um, and I've been interested in this subject for a very long time, uh, you know, to the point where, uh, believe it or not, my oldest child is, I think, 38 or 37 or something like that. And with all my children, I was enough into this then that I actually did not sign them up to get Social Security cards because I didn't want them to be part of the sort of economic system. I, uh, Eventually, they all got them because they sort of had to. But that just me, I just say that to show that I was aware that there was something wrong here for four decades ago. And it went on, and eventually, I learned what I would call the shocking news about how the dollar or currency is created. Because, you know, one, never, one doesn't know anything about that. And then somehow, and again, correct me if I got this wrong, but somehow the currency is not created by the people or the people's quote representative, if you want to say that's what the government is. It's actually outsourced to private corporations, otherwise known as banks. And <clears throat> I think it was one of the heads of the Rothschild banking family who said, and I'll paraphrase because I don't think this is the exact quote, but give me control of the currency and I care not who makes the laws. And so after studying that for a number of years, uh, in, in my heart book, which was written a number of years ago, I said, this is basically crazy. And I, I must say, I may be the only person who in a book about the heart talked about the, you know, the way that we create currency because it actually, I think is a heart problem. Um, oh, it absolutely did. If you look at the biggest killer in the world, it's heart disease. And, and the biggest driver to me of that is the drain that comes from the economic model. Yeah. It's a drain on your heart. Yes, yeah. drain on your heart. Um, so, so I actually proposed in there that we uh, should uh, stop using this currency called the dollar and instead uh, switch to something called Cowan's which then I would be in control of. Uh, however, that didn't go very far. And so nobody took that up. And I guess I don't really blame them. 
But I, I only say that to say that uh, it's been, you know, literally decades since I have thought that the model of, because if you're going to buy a house and somebody else can make money and you have to work for money, they always win because they just make more money and then you, they get the house and you don't. And I, I never could quite understand why the rest of the world would go along with that, except for the fact that basically I think we would shoot them if, if they didn't. There may be other reasons, but, uh, and so that led me into thinking, are all these countries sort of in cahoots? And this is just big, so one kind of crime syndicate that's running the whole thing. And I think that sort of leads us into where we are today. And I'm wondering if with that background, you could, uh, you could lead us into, you know, for people who may not know, where does this currency come from? What's the significance of currency, right? I mean, what is that? Why do we even, I don't know if it's why we use currency, but how did it come about and why is, you speak a lot about controlling the currency and this is a currency problem. And I don't think there's probably anybody in the world who knows more about this situation than you do. So I, if with that background, let, uh, if I could hear anything you would like to say to fill us in. Okay. Okay. So, so um, we, we are at the cusp of an effort by whoever leads the planet to cancel currency. So we are now facing the end of currency. So if we talk about currency, just remember, I think it's something that's about to come to an end or the leadership wants it to come to an end. I would say the defining characteristic of life on planet earth is we live within a governance system, which is a mystery. I've lived my whole life and I've tried to figure out who really runs things and how they run things. And I have to tell you, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> I have lots of, I, I have lots of, you know, high octane speculation, which is very informed high octane speculation. But I want you to think about how ridiculous and absurd it is that we live on a planet where the leadership is a mystery and the majority of the financial transactions and, and financial management is a secret. Well, so just let me stop you there because this is not like me saying the government is a mystery or the leadership because I've actually never worked in government except maybe the Peace Corps, which I guess you could say. This is not my, my 10 friends. This is somebody, correct me if I'm wrong, you were assistant secretary for housing and urban development. Right, so I've, I've, I've worked at the top of Washington and at the top of Wall Street. Right. And um, I have an online book called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. And it tells the story. I've tried to publish it in hard copy, but each time I'm threatened. And the last time they threatened my family. So I just leave it online. I figured it's not censored. And I tell the story in it once where another partner at my firm was uh, talking about the new president that we'd acquired. It's long ago in the 80s. And uh, I said, you know, it's strange. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy our chairman would pick. And, and the other partner whose father had been the chairman said, oh, well, Nick didn't pick him. The Ross Shields picked him. I said, what do they have to do with us? We own the firm. And he looked at me like I was the stupid, you know, this is why you can't make a woman a partner. And he just rolled his eyes and walked off. <laughs> 
I said, oh, great. You know, the conspiracy theories are true. Anyway, but um, the, the planet, you know, so, so we operate in a governance system, which is a mystery. And the financial system is just a, a component of the governance system. In other words, when people come to me and say, how should we reform the financial system? I, I don't know, because it's only part of the governance system. You can't, it's a little bit like saying you can, you can heal a leg without worrying what's going on in the body. It's very similar. So, so, um, so we're defined by mystery. And in fact, over the last 50 years, more and more and more of the governmental finances and budgets have become more and more secret. And the technology that's being developed, which is oftentimes invisible, has become more and more secret. So secrecy has been rising since World War II, not diminishing. And in fact, in the last three years, it's taken major steps up. As a result, you have a general population whose understanding of what's going on in the technology that is in use is totally, you know, they can't even fathom what's going on financially and the technology that's in use. I just read a wonderful newsletter by Sophia Smallstorm, and she described how the Comanches were wiped out by the European settlers. And she said the problem wasn't that they couldn't defeat the technology that they were facing. She said the problem was they couldn't even fathom that that technology existed. Right. So they couldn't develop you know, successful strategies to deal with it because they couldn't even face it existed. And yeah. that's the separation we have between the top and the bottom has gotten that great. Do now, you, Would you also say that uh, it's not just the technology that we can't fathom, we also can't fathom the mindset that they're using? Well, we can't fathom how the financial system works because basically you've got people who can pr print money out of thin air and then other people who pay 16% to borrow it, which so is who enormous. Who are the people who can print money out of thin air? So who are they? Yeah. Okay, so I'm just gonna, uh, essentially it's the people who control the central banking system. Right. And if you look at the governance committee above them, what I describe that as is Mr. Global. And we could have a whole conversation yeah. about all the different industries and layers and my conjecture about who it really is. Um, but the reality is we're not sure who Mr. Global is and we're not sure what the risks they're managing are, particularly geophysical risks. Yeah. And that's one of the big questions. Now, um, you know, I used to work and interact with a lot of people who clearly interacted directly with Mr. Global. So, you know, there's little snippets we can learn. But essentially, if, if you look at the technology we're dealing with, on the financial side, we're dealing with people who can, who can print money out of thin air, you know, for free. So money's free. They have a 0% cost of capital. And we have a cost of capital. The average American pays 16 to 17% on their credit card. And that's a huge difference. So in other words, just so we all understand that, in other words, if you're one of those people, I, I think you mean the central bankers or their affiliates, right. they can literally make as many dollars as they want to do whatever they want with no laws or constraints. Whereas, so let me give you an example. Yeah. Let's just pretend we're in a world where we have two groups of people. One are online retailers and one are Main Street realtors, uh, retailers. Okay. Yeah. So the online retailers and their pals 
pretend that there's a plague and they announce that all the Main Street retailers are non-essential. Yeah. Okay. At which point the central bank prints a lot of money, which they lend to the online retailers at 0%. And those retailers can now take over the market share of the Main Street retailers essentially for free. Yeah. They can take all their income and that drives their stocks up. Okay. So their stocks go very high and let's say they sell their stocks when they're very high and they reinvest that money in building out online or smart grids in communities so that they can expand their market share further. And let's say the government creates something called opportunity zones where they can shelter their capital gains tax on their sale of stocks. So how do they get a whole lot of real estate fast and cheap? Well, they send in an army of protesters to burn the place down in the opportunity zones, and that enables them to pick up the real estate for cheap. Now, if you follow all of this financial engineering and sort of machinations, what you realize is they're getting a whole lot of valuable assets for 10 cents on the dollar price with money that got printed out of thin air. Got it. Okay. Do they ever have to pay this money back or no? Uh, it depends on where you are in the food chain, yes or no. But you know something? When I'm guaranteed a, a 20% return and I have to pay back money that I'm borrowing at 1%. Doesn't matter. It, you know, it doesn't matter. Remember, the, the, the most valuable asset here is not the money. It's not the money. The, uh, the head of the MIT Media Lab once said something long ago, and it's stuck with me since he says, in a digital age, data about money is worth more than money. Uh -huh. In other yeah. words, intelligence. If I have the intelligence to know where and when to buy and sell, I, I don't need money. Yeah. So, so the powerful part of this network is the ability to not only know what's going to happen before it's happening, but to engineer what happens. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's go back for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Western world has been on a model called the central banking warfare model. The central banks print money out of thin air and the military makes sure they take it. So why did the dollar go and Cowan's not go? Because you didn't have a nuclear arsenal and you couldn't force you know, you didn't have the CIA and the Department of Defense. You couldn't force people to accept Cowens in exchange for valuable natural resources. Because think of, think of the central banking warfare. We're printing money out of thin air and people all around the globe are trading hard labor and hard assets for paper printed out of thin air. So you why know, is Russia, China, Venezuela, Bolivia, France, why do they use this money? That we that okay so wait so you're getting ahead like bear okay. with me let, me let me keep going this way because that's a very right. good question um so so for for many many centuries we've used the central banking warfare model but if we're going to globalize the central banking warfare model stops working uh -huh. okay because you you know if the first world is exploiting the third world the central banking warfare model works 
the question if you globalize, who's going to be the person you drain or harvest? Now, to a certain extent, what we've been watching in the first world is our local communities drained and harvest more and more. Okay. But at some point, the model breaks down. And in 1991, when I left the Bush administration, I believed we were going to have to change the model. And I started a company to prototype new solutions. And part of it was technology gives you the ability to do things you couldn't do before. Now you can increase learning metabolisms within communities and on networks in ways that create amazing wealth potential and, and ways of changing this model. What do, what do you mean by learning metabolisms? So, so a group of uh, say 10,000 people in a, in a village or town can so enhance their and improve their learning metabolism to dramatically increase their productivity. They can do a lot more for themselves. Decentra information technology should be decentralizing and can make the little guys way more productive up against the big guys. And it's only been through central bank intervention and government intervention that it's made the, the large guys more powerful. Can you give me an example of what the little guy could do to, what's the word he used to, his learning metabolism to improve his output sure. or product? So here's what I was working on in my company in the 90s at Hamilton Securities Group. If you can create a local currency, you know, so, so there's no reason a neighborhood can't have a central bank uh -huh. and circulate currency locally. In fact, it can be very, very productive. And the only reason it doesn't happen, I would say, is because there's always central bank intervention to protect its monopoly. But with, um, with a local digital system, particularly one that had local encryption, and you could then start to circulate equity locally. Now, pretend for a second that you have 100 small businesses in your community and 50 of them are in the local equity pool managed jointly by the sort of the business group for that place. And the pool itself, like a venture pool, could issue stock to all the people in that community. Okay. Yep. So you do an IPO and all the members of the community who want to own non-voting shares in a pool that reflects their local businesses. Okay, now I can make money from my local businesses succeeding. And what we find is if you own stock in a company, you're much more likely not only to use their products, but give them feedback Got and it. give them intelligence, which helps them succeed. But not only that, if you're in a pool, the local businesses, instead of just competing with each other, they can now, in, in other words, if the business next door is successful, it lowers my cost of capital and raises my stock. So I have a vested interest in getting together with the local businesses who are in the pool and pooling accounting and back office services. One of the things you find out if you work in Washington is the big businesses hire all the smart tax attorneys and lawyers and come in and lobby. If the small businesses could form these kinds of aggregations around equity, they could too. Now, here's where the, so, so now we've posited a couple ways where can the I, businesses- Can I stop you for a minute here? Because I want to see if I, if I understood you correctly here. Um, so in other words, you live in a, a place like Podunk, Iowa, and 
there's a hardware store, there's a flower store, there's 10 small farmers, there's a grocery store, there's a, a burger store, there's lots of stores, there's lots of independently owned businesses. Right. They form together, actually create their own currency like a, a, a podunk. And, and then everybody who wants to voluntarily, who lives in Podunk, buys shares in the company. They end so up cur the currency is separate from the equity pool. Yeah. Okay. So they also put together an equity pool and sell shares. Now, let, let me tell you why this is important. Most customers who walk into the local hardware store have a pension fund and a 401k and an IRA, which is financing a big box store to come in and take away uh -huh, right. their market. Okay, so my customers are financing the, the guys are going to come in and shut me down instead of financing me. But yeah. it doesn't have to be that way. So we could all use our, so two, two sort, one, we could be owners of our local businesses. Investors. And therefore, and therefore we would love if they did well and we would right. say, you guys got to get organic broccoli instead of somewhere else. And by the way, Joe down the road, he grows it. And right. on, then we could make a currency and keep the money so it's not being siphoned off by right. people who are making it. And then we or have debased. It's not being debased. It's not going down right. in value. It's reflecting the value of our time. Okay, but more importantly, if we created a publicly traded or a liquid stock, we could take our pension funds and retirement savings and invest it locally instead of shipping it to the competitors who are going to try and right. destroy our little businesses. Got okay? it. So if you look at the number one reason for the destruction of family wealth in the last 50 years in America, it's exactly this game, is centralizing control of capital in a way that centralizes control of equity and now is being used, you know, along with some pretty vicious healthcare crisis games to, to basically control market share. Got it. So I, so, but let me show you the magic in this because we're only, we're only playing with the financial engineering now. If you look at, imagine we had a publicly traded equity pool for your community. Okay, so I live in Tennessee. So if we had a equity pool for Hardeman County, Tennessee, what are the ways that I could make the stock go up? So let's say everybody has an investment through the pool in the, in, in the little businesses and um, you know the banks are supportive and helpful and we're all excited because we own shares. What could we do to make the value of our shares go up? Um, you could help them get better products and have more customers and make and have better quality and better marketing and maybe make a deal with the people in Kentucky to buy their stuff and you right. make refrigerators and we'll make flowers. So one is to help the businesses get smarter and new technology can do that. Okay, yeah. so we can get smarter. Another though, is to improve the environment in our place. One of the yeah. things you see is the healthier the environment is, the more the asset value in that place and the more people are attracted to that place. So for example, landscaping, ending pollution, changing the energy so that it's less harmful to the environment. Anything that will improve the environment will improve the value of the stock, as will anything that improves education. So 
the number one, you know, you can see, for, for example, in the District of Columbia, you could see in the suburban line, two houses across the street from each other, and one is worth 20% more because it's a better school district. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. One of my backcastings for for doing these kinds of community equity pools had uh, two counties fighting uh, over the teachers by giving them stock options to get the best teachers away. Yeah. But but literally investing in the environment and education will you create a joint incentive system to to make the place more wonderful in a whole variety of ways okay mm -hmm. and you have the businesses engaged in really being part of doing that because again everything that lowers the cost of their capital makes them more productive and that includes bringing in new technology yeah. so if you look at some of the things which i believe are possible with new energy technology the value of the land and real estate will explode from lowering the energy costs and what sort of energy technology are you referring to? Um, if you look at cold fusion or some of the breakthrough yeah. energy technologies, I'm not thinking so much of renewable, although there are great renewable stories. There's one town in Germany that brought in uh, a form of renewable energy and now pays more than 100% of their own energy costs. They export energy. Right. So, you know, so they're, they're... I think what you're talking about is if you take a small town and just sort of across the board, make their life better. You know, no glyphosate, organic farms, clean food, clean water, schools where children actually learn something that's true and uh, parents who have good work and, and, you know, meaningful stuff, that increases the value of everybody's life in that community and their assets. Right, right. So, so you know, the way you build a great civilization is one child at a time. It's that simple. But let me step back. What we've been dealing with globally and in America for the last 50 years is more and more use of digital technology and information technology to centralize control. Yeah. Centralized control politically, centralized control economically. And essentially, it's, if you look at where it's going, it's a highly psychopathic model. And what I think you and I are very interested in is, okay, how can we decentralize? Because this kind of technology should be decentralizing. And, so why and, is it a psychopathic model? Can you flesh that out a little bit? I mean, I think um, I know my answer, but I'd love to hear your answer. It's, com it's complex. It's not simple. Yeah. One is when you are, so, so my committee for the nickname, my nickname for the committee that runs the world is Mr. Global. Yeah. When you're in Mr. Global shoes, you find managing people very, very frustrating. And, um, you know, there's a theory in America that the swamp is only at the top and that's not the case. The swamp is bottom up and the corruption is also bottom up. And when the more secret you make the economy, the more frustrating you find managing it. So for example, um, one of the things I've tracked for a long time is what I call the financial coup d'etat. We knew coming into the 90s that we had to change the model. And the question was how? Yeah. And of course, one option is to dramatically centralize control and lower the population so that it's manageable and then manage everything with AI software and robots. 
you know, that is, if you're Mr. Global, that is the more risk adverse option. Yeah. In other words, if you're being conservative, it's like, I give up trying to talk with these people. Um, anyway, we knew we had to do it. And there was a real push, which had been going on for many years to, um, to dramatically, to, to get the budget on a financially sound basis. And they came into 1995. And I have to tell you, the leadership who wanted the non-psychopathic solution were in a state of complete frustration. They couldn't get the crowd to support in a democracy, they couldn't get general support for a financially responsible solution. Now we've seen other countries where they did. You know, right now I'm in the Netherlands. The Netherlands was remarkable in its ability to sort of institute and maintain financial responsibility. But in America, they couldn't. And when the 1995 deal busted, um, you literally had the leadership from what I can tell, and I can tell you the different stories that led me to this conclusion. The leadership said, that's it, we give up. We cannot get the American population to support a financially responsible solution. So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna move all the money out of the country and then when it, you know, when we've got all the assets and we've moved them out, we'll just pull the plug. And COVID-19 is step one in the pull the plug. So they so when you say they couldn't get a financially sound economy, they couldn't get a financially sound solution, that means what? Like a balanced budget? So, and a right. So so what they did was they bubbled the economy and then shifted. There's $21 trillion that's gone missing from the US government since that time. It was very interesting. I, in 1997, I had a, um, wait a minute, sorry, Zoom went. I had a, um, a board on, for one of my subsidiaries, which was the leadership of the pension fund industry, sort of 10 top guys in the pension fund industry. And I met with them to show them my plan for re-engineering county by county with equity and local currency, sort of bottom up. And um, the head of the largest pension fund in the country, Bill Christ, who was president of CalPERS, looked at me and he said, you don't understand, it's too late. They've given up on the country. They're moving all the money out starting in the fall. You've got to get to Nick Brady, who had been secretary of the treasury and my boss at Dylan Reed. And he said, they're, they've given up. They're moving all the money out. And I thought when he said that, I thought he meant we are re- we are re we're shifting the allocations in the pension funds to invest in Asia. Because in fact, when that started, when they started moving all the money out of the federal government, we did put big investments and there was big shift in money to Asia. Um, but lo and behold, it was, he said that to me in April 19, 1997, that October, which was the beginning of the 1998 fiscal year is when the 21 trillion started to go missing. Now, so then what were what they we doing did, with that money? They were buying stuff in Asia? So, so let me give you a couple of the different options and theories. One is you shift significant money into Asia and the emerging markets, but the big bet was Asia. Um, and so if you, if you look at Asia, we have a great wrap up on the rise of the Asian consumer, but Asia is basically headed at its current growth rate to merge with the developed and, and the the G7 world in terms of per capita income. So 
which is a very dramatic sort of political and economic shift that we're going through. Yeah. So, so one was that I believe a significant amount of money went into what, what is called the secret space program and a significant amount of money went into invisible technology of various kinds, including weather control and technology which can mimic disasters. Got so it. most people assume a tsunami is, um, is natural based on the trading patterns. I don't assume that at all. Yeah, got it. Right. So, and I think one of the most important investments they made was in mind control technology. So if you look at the secret societies, you know, so when I was growing up, I grew up in Philadelphia and Philadelphia was basically run by a combination of the secret societies. And um, if you look at what their sort of, you know, where did their power come from? One of their powers came from literally centuries of using mind control technology. But what happened in World War II, you had the Nazis do tremendous experimentation in mind control technology through Operation Paperclip. They, they brought their technology to the United States. You had the black budget then kick in. And this is where the big secret money makes such a difference. Working with the intelligence agencies basically took that over. And from everything I can tell, develop that technology to the point where you could deliver it on TV, smartphone, internet. Um, my first really sort of public encounter with it was in, <laughs> of all years, 1984. I overheard, this is when I was on Wall Street, I overheard several people, basically billionaire types, talking about entrainment technology and subliminal programming that was gonna be rolled out on TV. And I have to tell you, Tom, it scared me to death. I, that was, I went home, that was it for me and TVs. TVs were out the door yeah. and my husband insisted on keeping the TV. And so, and, and that was really one of the drivers. We got divorced two years later and I haven't had a TV since. I had a decorator bought a TV for me when I worked in the administration. She said, you can't work in the Bush administration and not have a TV, but out it went. It. And, um, you know, when my, my smartphone, when I'm in Tennessee, it sits in the car, it's not allowed in the house. So, so that technology, I think, is one of the most, uh, one of the things that has given the pro-centralization team the most confidence in doing many of the things we see unfolding. Got it. So let me okay. see if I, if I got this. So Mid-90s, there was a group of people that it sounds like you were part of who were saying, we can actually make a different economy happen, this sort of local. So, so I wasn't part of them. I'd been asked to join the Federal Reserve as a governor. Yeah. And I said no and started my own company because I said, I believe that if I could find a plan whereby decentralization could be more wealth producing than centralization and a democratic society could work for the top guys that they would listen. Now, I was mistaken, but I really had yeah. faith that they would listen. And by 1995, they didn't wanna listen. They were just ready to steal the money and go. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and my concern was the number one issue for the pension funds at that time was how are we gonna provide for the boomers retirement? And it was clear to me when the 21 trillion started to go missing that their decision was, uh, we're not, 
we're just going to stuff their pension funds full of phony baloney paper, pull all the real money, get control of all the real assets, and then leave them high and dry. Wow. Because we'd rather pay for space than nursing homes. Got it. So they basically made a decision around that, that we're done with this place. We're going to pull the money out and, and have a, uh, a more intensified using all these sort of nefarious techniques that they already had developed to so, centralize they, and centralize. So, well, uh, we got to talk about the red button problem next. So I would say they were left with a mathematical reality that if I cannot get the financial side, if I cannot get a democratic society to go along with a financial, um, a financially sound equation, the only other thing I can do is lower the life expectancy. So it's an actuarial, right. So, so if, if we can't do the financially responsible side of the equation, then my only choice is to leave you high and dry or lower life expectancy. I would note the month after they failed to get the budget deal was when the opioids were approved to go forward. That's when Purdue got its approval to go forward with Oxycontin by the wow. FDA. Wow. You know, and, and it was the same with all the predatory lending. So the, the predatory lending and all these different things were all designed to significantly lower life expectancy across the board. Okay. okay, so so let's talk about the red button problem because it's very easy to blame this, you know, on the upper echelons. So I, I want to talk about the broader problem. Yeah. In the central banking warfare model, you know, the CIA and the military has been running around the world, knocking heads and getting cheap natural resources for many, many decades. And most Americans have been subsidized by that system. Yeah. And very few objected. In other words, you use our money, we take your resources, and if you don't like it, that's not going to go well for you. Well, let me tell two stories. So at the end of World War II, George Keenan said, okay, we're 6% of the people, we have 50% of the resources, the only way we can keep this going is to knock some heads. So Goldwater gets up there and says, okay, we're going to have to drop bombs if we want to keep this going. And the American people rejected that. They said, oh, no, we're good Christians. We don't want to drop bombs on other people. So Jimmy Carter came along and he said, okay, we're going to shiver in front of the fireplace. We're going to cut back. And the American people said, oh, no, we don't want to do that. And then the Bushes came along and said, you know something? Y'all are good Christians. Here's your check. Don't ask questions. And we said, okay. I mean, that's part of where the secrecy comes in. So I'm going to tell you my red button story. Okay. So in the summer of 2000, I was uh, asked by a natural care practitioner to give a presentation on uh, how the money works in organized crime. And it later became a very funny, article, a famous article called Narco Dollars for Beginners. And the idea was to help you understand the intersection of organized crime profits with Wall Street and Washington. So, uh, this, the speech was given at a conference called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation International, and they are a wonderful group of people, highly educated, and they, um, you know, the goal is to help our society evolve spiritually. So they're very compassionate, caring people. So I'm in the middle of the presentation, and I'm talking about congressional testimony that occurred in 1998 regarding the intelligence agencies uh, bringing in drugs to South Central LA, the so-called dark alliance allegations. 
Gary Webb wrote about. So at the time, a reporter from the Department of Justice had told her, uh, I'm sorry, the, the head of public relations or somebody in the public relations department at the Department of Justice had told a reporter I was working with that the US economy launders 500 billion to a trillion dollars a year. That was in 1998. It's much bigger with financial fraud. Um, but the US economy is the global leader in laundering illegal monies, not just drugs, but everything, illegal gambling, yeah. sex trafficking, everything. So, um, so I said to this wonderful audience of spiritually evolved people, what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in laundering 500 billion to a trillion dollars a year? And we had a little conversation and they said, well, you know, our taxes would go up because we'd have trouble financing the deficit and our government checks might stop and our IRAs would go down because that money would go to Zurich and London and Hong Kong instead of coming to the New York Stock Exchange. And I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern. And if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your city, your county, your state tomorrow, thus offending the people who control, you know, a hundred years of accumulated profits thereon. Who will push the button? And out of a hundred people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, guess how many would push the button? One. One. So I said to the other 99, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our taxes to go up. We don't want our government checks to stop. And we don't want our IRAs to go down in value. So, so the dependency on warfare and organized crime is very, very old and very, very deep. And the thing I discovered that day, the problem was not that they wouldn't push the red button. The problem was they were not willing to go into the invention room and have an honest conversation about what's going on and how do we turn the red button green? Because if we can make money pushing the red button, then we can push the red button. But the thing that stops us is total secrecy. Now, as this has happened and the crowd has supported, you know, generally in politics, the guy who hands out the most money wins, right? Yeah. So the more organized crime, the more corrupt government, the more warfare you do, the more money there is to hand out. And that's what the crowd supports. So I go back to the Bushes who said, you know, here's your check. You're good Christians. Don't ask questions. And in politics in America, the winners politically have been the people who, who come up with a story of here's your check and here's your story of why you're good. You know, so now we've fallen into the trap of saying they are bad. They being the big boys. Right. Yeah. So, so the only difference is for hundreds, for, you know, certainly since World War II, the big boys have cut us in for a slice of the profits. Yeah. Now what's changing is they don't need us anymore. So now they're cutting us out. And why don't they need us anymore? They don't need us anymore because if you, um, and I shouldn't say they don't need us, they don't need as many of us. Yeah. And they certainly don't need, you know, if you, if you go through the population, it's very selective, but if you look at what they can do with AI autom uh, automation and robotics, yeah. and then if you look at how much is owed to certain people because of pension fund or right. insurance or other liabilities. So for example, in New York State, according to the statistics I was able to find online, the long-term care insurance industry 
had just experienced the year before, I think in 2018, a 35% increase in payouts. If that kept continuing, they, I, I'm assuming they would go bankrupt. Right. You know, and so what happened in New York, if anything, was an insurance industry bailout. So essentially by creating uh, health problems for these older people or other ways of isolating them and torturing them, then they stick around less and then you don't have to pay for it. Right. So, so, so either you're, you're significantly lowering life expectancies or you're sending to a message to families, you know, your, your parents are safe or kept at home. Yeah. Got but, it. So you're killing demand for, I, I think it's more complicated than that. I'm grossly yeah. oversimplifying, but right. Right. the reality is if you go through the population, many, many people are worth more dead than alive. So especially now, since you've stuffed their pension funds full of government paper that's being debased rapidly as we speak. Got it. Okay. So when you, and, and when you get into this whole currency that, which we, I think we're mean, we're talking about the dollar and then you say that the currency is ending and there's going to be a new model. Can you flesh that part out? For sure. Us? So, so since the financial crisis, we're talking um, 2008. Well, let, let's go back to 2000. Since 2000, several times we have run up the, the dollar float around the world and then pulled credit and entrapped people. Um, you know, it's called a debt entrapment. And societies around the world have been very frustrated by those successive debt entrapments. And it makes them want to be independent of the dollar system and be able to provide their own credit, just as I described a community being able to. Can you describe a debt entrapment for everybody? What is that actually, what does that look like? So I just described it. I'm on Main Street. I finance my yeah. business with a 16% credit card. You come in, declare me non-essential. The, the central bank, you know, directly or indirectly gives you 0% cost of capital to come and take away all my yeah. customers and market share, but I still have to pay yeah. Chase Manhattan Bank my 16%, right? Got it. So you so, got no way to pay it. it. You got no way to pay it, except the government is offering you subsidy and you've got to go along with their terms and conditions. I just got a great email from our producer. We have a producer in France and she said, you're not going to believe this for all the businesses here to get their government subsidy they had to put all their financial documents and, and private financials in a cloud that's on the Amazon cloud. <laughs> I said, oh, well, the private equity guys are gonna have that, you know that. Yeah. So, so, you know, a lot of this comes down again to this information and intelligence warfare. Right, it, it reminds me when I was uh, practicing medicine not so long ago and I was a Medicare provider a number of years ago. Um, in order to uh, keep being a Medicare provider, I had to do electronic records. And I didn't realize it, but when I, when I signed up to do electronic records, they were essentially getting access to my charts. Right. And, and so before electronic records, if somebody came in with high cholesterol, I would say something like mazel tov. Uh, right. And now they would actually, and, and it was hard for them to, 
to know that because they would have to send somebody to my office and look through these 3,000 paper charts. And, and I would say, I don't know which ones have high cholesterol. You have to look. And they just wouldn't do that. But now they could just click, you know, Cowan, high cholesterol, send me notices saying, if right. you want to keep being paid, you have to put these people on statin drugs. Right. And they didn't say it quite as boldly as that, but that was really the point that, that, that everything was known. And that's, a, that's a, you know, if, if I was dependent on that for my livelihood, that's a problem. Right. They have many, many different ways in terms of interceding between the professional and their professional obligations to their client or patient. Yeah, right. So, uh, so let me tell you two stories that will sort of indicate how to get a, or, or sort of where the solutions lie. Um, when I first moved to Tennessee, I was sitting in Bible class one day and I, I always get people to talk about their money. And what I discovered was I was looking at three friends, one who was borrowing money from a New York City bank and paying 25% on their credit card to finance their business. One whose IRA was invested in the same bank and they were probably getting at that point three to 4%, although the financial crisis was coming and <laughs> it would have been that way down. And another who had a CD in a local bank whose correspondent was that same New York bank. So this one is investing for 4% in, a, in, the, in this New York bank. This one is lending to this New York bank for maybe 4% when it's all said and done. And then their friend is borrowing it back for 25%. Now, why do those three friends need that New York bank in between them? Yes. Why? I've never been able to figure it out. Where I come from, that's a 2000 basis point arbitrage plus, <laughs> you know, yeah. so, we would never let that sit there and not take advantage. But, so here, but that is exactly, I think, the key to this solution here and to understanding. Why doesn't Joe lend directly to Fred? And I think it's, it's got something to do with trust and it has something to do with the power of anonymity with it when it when regard to money. Right, but when you can use a good local bank, because whether you'd circulate equity or debt within a community, I would always find ways of protecting that anonymity and keeping it, you know, keeping it uh, there. It's very productive for many reasons, but you can do that with a good local bank. Yeah. So let me see if you agree with this. I think the reason Joe doesn't lend to Fred is um, as Joe values his friendship so much to Fred that he knows that if Fred somehow doesn't pay him back because he goes out of business or something, that he would have to end the friendship with Fred and he would rather Fred have financial problems than lose the friendship. That's one reason, but there, there are many others because Fred's not always trustworthy. Right. So um, it, it's very interesting. I had, uh, so let me tell you several stories in this vein. I had, my uncle had a wonderful friend who uh, at one point I talked to 
I don't know, we were standing around at one of the, uh, at a Quaker meeting, in fact, it was. And I said, uh, you know, he was complaining about his discomfort with the equity markets. So what came out, I talked to him, he had five kids and they all had mortgages with high interest rates. I said, this is a no brainer. Why don't you finance all your kids? You know, when yeah. you die, they're going to get the money anyway, right? right? You know, so why don't you just keep in the family and let them pay their high interest rate to you? And then you don't have to worry about the stock market. So I saw him when my uncle many years later died and I saw him at the funeral and he said, you know, I did. I refinanced all five kids. And he said, you know, I get a really sweet yield and you know something else? I miss the big boom in the stock market, but I sleep like a baby every night. <laughs> yeah. So, but I want to tell you one last story about the smartest investment I ever made. When uh, in 1990. Six, I basically got attacked by the Department of Justice in a, in a very ugly enemy of the state process where they're making stuff up. It's one of these long shaggy dog stories. And this went on for a couple of years. And then in 1998, they just really renewed their attacks. It got very, very dirty. And in the process, they tried to shut off all my credit and income from any source whatsoever. And at that point, one of the things I sat down and I realized that I had given or lent to friends and family $250,000. I had a quarter of a million dollars out there on the network. Yeah. I had no documents. I had no paper. It was just a, it was a character loan or a character gift. Right. And everybody got together, including this wonderful uncle and said, well, she always helped everybody. Let's help her. And if I hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have helped. Yes. And it went on for 11 years. And at the end of 11 years, I sat down and I counted up all the people who paid me back the loans or who gifted me money. And it wasn't necessarily the same people who gifted it back. And I had been repaid or gifted exactly $250,000. Wow. It was like a miracle. Yeah. And when I settled the litigation, I got all the money in and then I bonused out almost all the money because I was sure they're going to try and come after me on the taxes. I said, no problem. You know, I just bonus this out. And I'm going to put it back in that community bank because that community bank saved my life. Yeah. And one of the things I know is, you know, I trust that community bank a lot more than I trust the financial system. So basically what you're saying is human to human connections are what are the things that have the most value. If, and if. this is a very big if, my favorite story about what's going to happen in the future is the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. Yeah. And the moral of the story in Gideon is you can only play this game with people who are ethical and competent. No bad dogs. Because, um, you know, you cannot afford to do business or function with people who don't have integrity. And if you look at the big critical issues on governance of a community equity pool, you know, it's putting together the people you need to ensure that you have the expertise, the competence, and the, you know, strategic and moral leadership you need to, to do it very well and prudently. So how do you and, do that? It's very hard. I mean, I can sit down, we can have a whole show on how you do that. And I'm happy to do that. But, 
but it's not easy because we have seen tremendous corruption of the general population. Yeah. Most of the people that I sit down and talk to have been trained and learned terrible financial habits, terrible sort of integrity. Um, you know, they have been taught to be corrupt. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I do want them to borrow from the big bank because the big bank has the clout to, you know, do all the evil things to them and they'll respect the big bank. They won't respect, you know, an honest local lender. Yeah. So you have to be exceptionally careful. And, you know, and my guess is groups that do this are going to have to really work at educating themselves as to what is good practices. Yeah and probably put in systems. So this sounds to me right. like a bit of a, it's not, it's not just relying on the goodwill, it's actually putting in systems that right. actually help people to become sound thinkers right. and moral and all the rest of it. So, so I'll give you two examples. One of the things you'll find is you have to understand, I love my bank. I have the world's greatest community bank as my banker and I love my bank. And my bank is run by my cousins who are part of what one friend of mine calls the Southeastern Quaker conspiracy. Yeah. And, and, you know, a bank like my cousin's bank is a bank which really understands how to do that. And they understand who is reliable and who is not. They have remarkable intelligence on the, you know, on the markets they serve. And that's why one of the things you want to do if you do something locally is you want to find one or more of those great local banks or credit unions and get them involved because they still maintain a lot of that technology. They still have that in-house and they are exceptionally valuable in thinking about how you do that. And I would, especially for loan servicing or investment servicing, they have the systems and capacity to do that, whereas we don't. I got it, yeah. Right. Okay, uh, maybe let's switch tracks a little bit and give us um, a little bit of your take that I, I think you have so far on sort of what this whole COVID uh, thing is about and where you see uh, it going, maybe in particularly after the election. So I thought what's happening with COVID, I thought was going to happen after the election. And one of the questions was, why did it accelerate and happen before? And um, because I've been very close to John Rappaport for many years, I've lived through many phony, yeah. you know, almost pandemics or almost epidemics or little mini epidemics. So I've lived through this a lot. Um, if you watch the financial patterns, to me, COVID-19 was designed to do a couple of things. One is to keep the dollar system going. It's been very positive for the dollar. The second was, and as they kept the dollar going, to move more market share under central control. So the global billionaires are up 27% since March. It's been and, very and, successful. And the reason the dollar system needed to be kept going was, is that is that because so many other countries were saying, we don't want any part of this anymore. Uh, so many other countries were looking for workarounds. So I would recommend the, our, the most recent wrap up we published in hard copy is State of Our Currencies. Yeah. So I keep trying to get a copy to you. I know I've gotten a copy to your yeah. son, but um, 
it, it describes what has happened since the financial crisis to, uh, to, for other countries to look for ways of improving their market share, for the Chinese to improve their market share vis-a-vis -vis the US currency. Now the US currency is still very, very strong, um, but it's, it's what uh, the economists once called dangerous and dominant. And what's happening is the US is using the dollar system to assert sort of empire control and all sorts of different countries around the world who just want a currency to trade yeah. are tired of being controlled through the currency and they're frustrated. So there's a, a lot of frustration building up. At the same time, there is pressure from a variety of forces to institute a digital system which will end currencies as we know it. So at the retail level, if you look at the currency they would like to implement, it is one which is essentially accredited at the company store. The central bank can stop you from trading. In other words, you can be turned on and off from central headquarters. And so it's not really your money. It's your money so long as you do what you're told and behave. So if the central bankers decide you can't travel more than five miles from your home, and if you travel past five miles, then then your your you know your card won't work. Right. So it's a. So you couldn't go to the uh, co-op six miles away because the only money they take is this credit system. That's the only right. money that's allowed, and they know that you're six miles from your home, and it doesn't work there. Right. It's like the old plantation system. Yeah. Right. You have to buy at the company store. Now, you know, when they built the railroads that, you know, the train could not go from the East Coast to the West Coast unless you laid the tracks the whole way. Right. Yeah. Okay. The gruesome thing to understand about what the central banks want is they want the train tracks. You know, the last mile is into your neighborhood and your home in very invasive ways, but the last inch is into your body. Got it. So whether it's digital identity, and if you look there, if you come into our website, if you're logged in, you see a database called Dr. Gates's Creepy Technology, because they're prototyping thousands of systems and they're patenting thousands of technologies. I don't think they know which one they want. You know, there's a huge competition and they're, they're you know, they're in prototype phase. But if you look at COVID-19, it was designed to keep the dollar system going, but accelerate the new. And the tricky thing about the new one is how are you going to get the chip system and the mind control system to work to a level of complete total control? Yeah. And that's where the health aspect comes in because you wanna basically just like, you know, Bill Gates, you know, the, the rumors are that Bill Gates's claim to fame was putting a Trojan horse, a back door in your computer you know, they put in the operating system and you have to update it every quarter because of a virus, right? Yeah. So now we're talking about putting an operating system in the human body. Even Moderna called it the software of life. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and you've got to update it every quarter because there's a virus, right? Right. This is why you coming along and saying there are no viruses that, you know, that doesn't fit with the script. Right. Because how are we going to get you to install an operating system and update it? Right. And, the, and, the, and the operating system is critical, I believe, and this is a wild ass guess because I'm not, I'm, health is not my bead, but it's to both get the nanoparticles and other materials in you need to, to basically have you 
chip, but to basically interact with mind control. And the reality is I want you, I want you to resonate with the machine instead of resonating with all life. Yeah. Because if you resonate with all life, I can't control you. You're yeah. independently intelligent yeah. and, and, and unpredictable. And, you know, so I want to, I want you to resonate with life. And then, you know, the danger of course, is if you look at all the systems they're putting into place, which are all systems for control, you know, is, 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 is that system just to end currencies to re-engineer the financial system and control, or are they planning on rolling out real pathogens that are going to do real damage? Not to say that, you know, the CDC says 10,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 or hypoxia or whatever, whatever is happening, whatever the pathogens are. But so, so I'm not, I'm not trying to negate the sort of whatever is going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's some think, illness happening for sure. Yeah. The doctors, I have a couple of doctors who are subscribers who've been describing all along what's going on and they're seeing these very strange, um, and they call it hypoxia, but they're seeing very yeah. strange patterns of hypoxia and whether it's caused by 5G or chemical warfare, who knows? But my biggest concern watching the patterns in New York and the other places where you've seen real, some real thing happening, my concern is this is something, some pathogen that's in our bodies, whether it's from spraying or whatever the delivery mechanism that they can turn on and off with EMF technology. Right. And, and they may, you know, my concern is that, that they're putting in place the systems they need to do this on scale. Yeah. So I don't underestimate the possibility that Mr. Global is looking to significantly change the size of the population. Right. So essentially, and it's maybe partly uh, changing the size of the population, partly just sort of scaring the crap out of people so that they Otherwise, would question whether they want to accept these chips. Right. So, if if, if I'm a governor and you have the ability to turn on the EMF technology and kill ten thousand people, I can blackmail you into shutting down Main Street. Yeah, essentially, so, that's what's happened. Right. Well, it could be a control file. It could be, you know, there's there's a whole. I ha we have a series called Deep State Tactics and all the tactics you use to get a governor, you know, to act as ridiculous as some of these governors have. They have many ways of both incentivizing and blackmailing, yeah. you know, but they could also be blackmailing by threaten threatening to kill people. Yeah. And what's scary is if you look at the invisible technologies that they've been using for quite some time, if you're a president or a governor, your general population can't fathom that a tsunami could be induced or you can't fathom that EMF technology could turn deaths on and off. And, and so you're fighting with an enemy who's got invisible technologies and your general population will never support you in fighting with them. Yeah. Cause they just can't even fathom it you exists. Can't believe it, you're right. right. So do you see any, any, uh, any prediction as far as the election that's coming up changing anything? Does that make any difference or what do you, What's your take on that? Well, it makes a difference. If, if you look at the policies of the two sides, it will make differences. And if you look at 
what the two sides will do to fight back. You know, when, if, when one of them doesn't win, that will make a difference. But the acceleration of re-engineering is going to happen one way or another. Yeah. Even uh, if only, uh, as a financial matter, it has to. And so um, it has to because you've basically taken, you've, you've taken all the assets that were going to support the boomers in their retirement and you've shifted them out. Yeah. And in their place, you've left lots of treasury bills and you're now tremendously debasing that currency. And you're in a process whereby the central bankers of the world are in the invention room prototyping and trying to come up with a new one. And in the meantime, you're trying to exercise complete control of the population in a variety of ways so that as this happens, you can maintain control. So if I, if I hear you correctly, I, I, what I'm hearing is the reason it has to happen is they have all these obligations, which they know that millions and millions of people would literally be pissed off if they don't meet them. And yet they have no way to meet them besides doing these extraordinary measures, which actually hide the fact that they don't have the ability to meet their obligations to the people. Well, they have a way them, but they'd rather not. Yeah. And they don't have to. In other words, if you look at how successful the mind control technology has been, they don't have to. Yeah, because nobody catches on. Not nobody, but not nobody. You know, there's there's 10% that catch on, but there's you know, there's 80% who don't, or you know, enough of them are willing to follow around the, you know, sort of the Judas goats who get paid to, to lead. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think one way or another, it's coming to a head. Now, the biggest challenge we have, we have to, whatever, the central banking warfare model has to be reinvented. It has to change. It has to evolve. So we do have to change how we do things. Um, one, we can't, you know, keep running around the world and killing everybody and stealing their stuff. That's that's part of the problem. Um, but if we're going to become a multi-planetary civilization, we have to have a way, you know, part of this is happening because there is a fundamental market demand for some kind of central banking function globally. And the challenge, we have many challenges of doing what the central bankers are trying to do is very, but how do you do that without bringing transparency to how the central, how the global governance system works? Right, yeah. Right. Now, the other thing is you can imagine why you're changing the fundamental technology of what transactions are done with from currency to credit or globalizing the central banking function. Because remember, what a lot of the wars for the last 10 years have been about are getting the countries that don't have privately owned central banks sort of in the privately owned central banking system. Right. So it's getting the central banks all uniform globally. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges of doing that is, is I described the transparency on the governance system, but you also have transparency uh, a problem about organized crime. If you're going to a system of total control and yet the dollar has a $2 trillion float, a lot of that money being you know, used by organized crime, 
how do you convert to a total control system when you're highly dependent on organized crime and you're pretending it's happening because you can't control it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so integration yeah. is a problem. And when you combine all those different things, which you've got, which you opened up with is enormous factionalism. So let me just propose to you I think the number one most logical scenario we're facing is that the central bankers fail. In other words, the infighting and the factionalism is so great that their effort to bring in this total control system fails. Oh, okay, soon. I don't know soon because I think what they're up to will take minimum two to three years and could take five to 10 years, depending. Yeah. And I don't the under five years. Like. Well, but I don't underestimate their ability to kill a lot of us. If, if you look at what they're talking, you know, if you want to inject an operating system full of nanoparticles and heavy metals and fetal tissue into us, I'm assuming you can kill a lot of people. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so, or you can sterilize a lot of people maybe is what I should say, but, um, I think what they're trying to do is so contradictory to life and natural law that it doesn't work and, and you end up seeing the factions you know, blow up. And so the question for all of us is back to the red button problem. You know, we refuse to push the red button. So now Mr. Global has pushed the red button. So, okay, how are we gonna turn it green? Because yeah. if they fail, What's our plan? Right. And so it sounds like the plan is decentralized local control and human to human with systems in place to allow humans to be human with all their foibles right. and inconsistencies right. so that they can actually work it out in a combination of human and inspired uh, sort of right. way. So if you can integrate technology allowing local autonomy bottom up and, and build something where you're in alignment between money and life, both the environment, the animals, the plants and humans too, yeah. which is very, you know, it's more than possible, you know, and scale up using, you know, real free liquid transaction systems you've got a chance. It's going to be very organic, very messy, but you're talking about a major step up in terms of bottom-up responsibility. Right. Now, many cultures around the world have the culture to do that. The United States has been very, uh, you know, the, the, the culture of individual responsibility and maturity, you know, that has not been encouraged for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Right. So that's a big change. So if people out there are listening and they say, I get this, I want to work with this, who, where do they go? Who do they call? Where, website? I mean, I, they go to solari.com, I think. So if you go to solari.com, you can, uh, there, there's a tremendous amount of information, but this is not a paint by numbers kit. Yeah. Okay. Because right. the first thing each one of us has to do, you know, there's what I can do underneath my, you know, within my own control. There's what I can do with my family. There's what I can do with the community. It scales out. Yeah. And each person's talents and situation and interests are different. 
But the first thing I would say is we have a, 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 a piece called Coming Clean. It's public, anybody can get it. The first thing you need to do is you need to clean out of your life anybody who's not faithful, ethical, competent, whether they're people or institutions. Um, and then you need to take a good serious look at your time and your money budgets and your assets. Yeah. And you need to say, um, how can I shift my time and my money, not only to build living or financial wealth, but to stop supporting all the things that are destroying my world? Right. I mean, if, if you're, you know, if I look at most people's portfolios, they're financing this. Yes. You know, why anybody has money in big pharma stocks. Now, I will tell you when you look at your investments and your money, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, what are you doing to finance a clean, clear, coherent mind and a healthy body? Yeah. I have never, I was an investment advisor for 10 years and it was very rarely I saw, I met a lot of people who were financing the national security state and not financing their own clear mind and healthy body. Right. Okay, so if, you're, if you don't have a free mind and a healthy body, you're not even pulling up into the starting gate. Right. And if you put money into financing the national security state and big pharma stocks, you're financing your own death. Right, you know, and, you, and just, you're susceptible to blackmail because then if you don't do what they say, they're going to cut off your only income and then you're right. Broke. Right. Okay. So, so the first thing is you've got to get healthy, pull in the starting gate. That's number one. Number two, 20 years ago, it made sense to put your money in something that gave you a yield and then take that yield and buy what you needed at, you know, at the store. Now, whether it's risk issues or yield, since the yields are so low, it makes sense to be as resilient as possible and own what you do. I used to have a client who would constantly whine that her water bill was going up and the yield on her stocks were going down. I said, this is a no brainer. She lived in a rural area. I said, sell your stocks and build a well. Yeah. Right. What, what? So, so we've been intermediated. Right. Take a look at your balance sheet and get the intermediaries out, out, out you know, pay off your debt, build your own well, whatever you can do. So you've got a group of people working together, food, shelter, energy. What can you do for yourself or with other people around you? Now, I know you know this, but I'm just going to say this. Essentially, you're saying invest in your life, your family's life, your community's life. The more you can control it, the more it's healthy, sound, safe way to live. Like, well, instead of somebody putting fluoride in your water that is that's that's how you build wealth and community right one of the one of the best investment opportunities i've been able to find i used to be able to find for some clients were clients who had a community development loan fund or co-op that would take an investment to finance their operations there's a there's a lot of local opportunity you just have to look and and find it let me keep going though um the most important thing you need if you have an asset is you need an army to protect your asset. So if you come into Solari, we have something called the Take Action Crowdfund. And it came from um, 
this happened about six months ago, a subscriber called me and she was selling a property and she wanted to know if she should buy more real estate or precious metals. And I said, you know something, if you look at where the leadership's going, they're going to take all of our assets. So I would, I would say that you don't need more assets. You need an army. <laughs> Yeah. So I encouraged her to finance a litigation effort that we're both familiar with. And, and then I said, you know, we've got to do more of this. So we created something called the Take Action Crowdfund. And you come into the Take Action Crowdfund and we send you either to Children's Health Defense, the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, Stand Up Ohio, we're about to add Restore Freedom. But these are all litigators fighting for our freedom. Now, the most important army who's fighting for your freedom is your sheriff. Your sheriff is the constitutional determiner in your county. Yeah. In other words, um, you know, the sheriff can literally tell the feds to leave. The, the sheriff has supreme constitutional authority within your county. You need to, to not worry about the presidential election and start worrying about who your sheriff is and making sure your sheriff will defend you and feels like he has the local support he needs to, yeah. to do that, okay? Yeah. So, so in addition to food, shelter, energy, enforcement, who's your army, you know, and that's a variety of things. You know, do you have a lawyer who's ready to back you up? I know right. you do, but <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so make sure you have your army. And then there's many other things Beyond that, you can find, there's just a ton of material at the Solari Report. Got it. You know, that sounds like a good stopping point, Catherine. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how grateful I am. And I think this will be invaluable for people to, it's, it's a partly, it's a, there's a little bit of dark stuff, you know, I mean, that's just life, but there's a lot of, you know, here, we're not helpless here. We're not helpless. So I'll tell you a little secret. I, can I tell one more story? One more story. So when I was working in the 90s on the, um, on the circulation of money locally, yeah. essentially the key to the economics at that time was taking the government money and turning it from a negative return on investment to a positive. Most of the federal money that comes into a counties in America has a has a harmful impact because of the rules and regulate, you know, it's used to control instead of to build wealth. Anyway, so I had my smartest guy doing all the simulations of what could happen if we could just re-engineer everything, you know, in the ways that we've been discussing. And he kept bringing back his results and the increase in wealth was so fantastic. I thought he was making a mistake. And I kept saying, you know, it has to be wrong, go do it again. It can't possibly be right. And finally, he said to me, look, you have got to stop and take the weekend and go through all my numbers because it's not wrong. Yeah. And so I did. And what I discovered is the wealth potential is so enormous. If we could find a way to re-engineer the financial system in alignment with life yeah. and let life be life and let life live, you know, the wealth potential is fantastic. It's and unbelievable. His, it's unbelievable. Health potential is just healthy people, healthy mind, healthy body, right? Healthy family, healthy environment, healthy school, healthy grocery store, healthy bank. Just go out and out and out, and then life is wonderful. Thanks for coming. <laughs> right.
imagine if if 325 million Americans were healthy. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, there you go. All right, Catherine. Thanks. <laughs> All right, talk again someday, sometime soon. Thank Have you. a good one. You too, bye-bye.